Welcome to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast, where every week I take a look inside the world of film and television with those who have lived it and experienced it. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and coming up later on in the show, you'll be hearing my conversation with Dr. Thomas Keith. He is an author, professor, and documentary filmmaker, and we discuss his latest documentary, Bullied, which deals with the long-term effects of bullying, not just with kids, but how it affects the parents as well. It's one of the most powerful documentaries that I've seen in a long time, so we'll be discussing that later on in the show. But first, I wanted to talk about a topic that's been in the news now for a week, maybe a little bit more, but it's about a potential Superman reboot, another Superman reboot, with J.J. Abrams producing and ta Coates writing the script. And this has been met with some mixed reviews, we'll, we'll say that, but um, it was recently broke, uh, it, the Hollywood Reporter broke the story that J.J. Abrams will be producing it, ta Coates will be writing the script, and this would be a reboot of Superman, even though Henry Cavill hasn't been the, playing the character that long. I think Man of Steel came out in 2013, and I, it... There's some thoughts with the DC film universe that I'll get into in a second and how this can play into the long-term effects of it. But I know that this has some mixed reviews to it because, you know, Coates wrote some not very kind words to say about 9-11 first responders. And I I don't really want to get into that. I want to focus specifically on this story. I'm not opposed to it because they're saying that it will showcase a black Superman, which I have no problem with. At this point, I'm kind of like, why not when it comes to trying new things with film? And I know that there have been different iterations of Superman, and it's not the Clark Kent version. There's the Calvin Ellis version that ultimately I think this story would entail. I have no problem with telling a new take on Superman. However, I would not make Clark Kent an African-American, because you look at Spider-Man, they created the Miles Morales character several years ago, and he has his occult following, and you look at Into the Spider-Verse, which starred Miles Morales, and I would say that's the best Spider-Man film that's ever been made. You know, I, I don't think, the first thing that I would do is I would not make Clark Kent African-American is what I'm trying to say, because I have no problem with telling other stories because DC has hinted that they're doing a multiverse similar to what, you know, Marvel's going to be doing now. DC's been planning it longer, but Marvel's kind of beat them to the punch with it. So I I have no problem with that. If they want to make a separate story with Calvin Ellis, and for those who might not be familiar, Calvin Ellis is essentially an African-American Superman. He comes from Krypton. And uh, the crazy thing is he actually becomes president of the United States. And this is all new information for me. You know, I read this story and I just kind of went into a little bit of a rabbit hole as far as reading up about different versions of Superman and and things like that. But thinking about it, you know, I, I say, why not? Why not try something different? And if it doesn't work, then you just don't do it. I mean, there have been other films that have tried new things, and they don't work, and they just move on to something else. I will say I hope that this is a separate universe, similar to what DC's doing with uh, Robert Pattinson, uh, with his version of the Batman. That's 
in a separate universe than what has been done with like Man of Steel, Wonder Woman, Justice League. I think this Superman would be a separate universe, which I think is what DC needs to do. Because this to me is a big picture thing, not just with this specific Superman reboot. I think what DC needs to do, because they tried the Marvel formula and it didn't work. So why not just do one-off stories? Or say if, you know, this Superman film is a success, then you want to do sequels to it? Why not? But I, I don't think they should try a... They should move away from the shared universe. You know, I mean, back in the day, you'd get like a trilogy of Batman films, and then there'd be nothing for five, ten years, and then you'd get the Dark Knight trilogy. You know, why why not just do that? I I personally have no issue with it. Like I I don't look at this as like the end of Clark Kent or, you know, disgracing the Clark Kent character. I, I'm saying that I wouldn't make Clark Kent African American because to me there's so much history with that character that why would you just reinvent it when you can make something new? So I'm saying. I, I'm personally not I, I'm not against it is what I'm trying to say. I and I've watched so many YouTube videos of people, you know, outraged at this. And some of it is because of Coates' comments about um, you know, the 9-11 first responders. There have been some who said that, you know, he may not get the essence of who Superman is. But my thing is, if it's not Clark Kent, he doesn't have to have the exact same qualities personality as Clark Kent you know you can do you can do something different and it's still good so I'm very curious to see how the story progresses you know I, I haven't heard anything new since the Hollywood Reporter originally broke it uh, a week or so ago but I, I'm not opposed to it you know if, if I'm DC I'm kind of trying new things and seeing what works because what they were doing before didn't and it even goes back to the the upcoming Snyder Cut of Justice League. You know, People are excited for it, and I'm curious to see it. But to me, there's a reason that, that fr I won't say franchise, but that what DC has been doing has not worked. So why not try something different? That being said, I would still like to see a Henry Cavill starring a Superman sequel. You know, because while Man of Steel wasn't perfect, it definitely has its flaws. I didn't dislike that movie. And I like Henry Cavill as Superman. And there are people upset that they feel like he's just going to get cast by the wayside. There is one scenario where that would happen. And now I would not do this. But with the upcoming Flash movie, they're sort of adapting the Flashpoint storyline where Flash goes back in time saves his mother from dying, and as a result, things change. Now, in the Flashpoint animated movie, as well as the comic series, things changed, like Thomas Wayne became Batman, Superman landed in Metropolis and was kept in isolation for years. But they're not going to, I think, straight up do that. I know that Michael Keaton will be returning, and they're going to go to that Batman 1989 universe. And it, it's being reported that that's how they're going to essentially push Ben Affleck out of the DC universe 
and replace him with Michael Keaton. And Michael Keaton would be like the Nick Fury of, uh, of the DC universe. The positive aspect to that is they could do a live-action Batman Beyond movie, which has been talked about, you know, has been craved for years. What they could do, and again, I would not do this, what they could do is when Flash resets everything, because there are changes that were made. One of those would be Michael Keaton is the new Batman. They could, whoever is going to play, I'm assuming the Calvin Ellis Superman, would then be the primary Superman in the DC universe. Now, again, I would not do that. I understand that that's probably going to, the DC cinematic universe as it is now is probably going to continue in some form of fashion. I think it will be restructured after the Flash movie. But if I'm DC, I just focus on doing one-off films. And then maybe, you know, in several years, you scratch everything and then you try the Marvel method. But I still don't think they would be as successful because you're just going to be compared to Marvel. You know, and up until WandaVision came out, I was skeptical that even Marvel could do it again. But it seems like they're still on the right track for success when it comes to having their shared universe. So if I'm DC, I don't try to replicate Marvel. I focus on telling good stories. And maybe this would be a good story. You know, we, we don't really know until we hear reports of what the actual story is going to be about. We don't know until we see a trailer. It's all speculation at this point. So I'm very curious to see what happens with it. But I'm willing to give it a chance. I don't think it's the end of the world if we get an African-American Superman. But that's just how I would do it. How it'll be, I have no idea. But that's my thoughts on it. But coming up next on the show is my conversation with Dr. Thomas Keith. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, I was blown away by the Bullied documentary. It really spoke to me, because I and I get into it in the interview, but you know, I was bullied as a kid as well, so... Seeing these stories really spoke to me, and it's one of the most powerful documentaries I've ever seen, and it's going to be available uh, later this week on Amazon Prime YouTube movies, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later on, but I would definitely recommend that you check it out. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Thomas Keith. Welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience podcast, and this week I'm joined with author and filmmaker Dr. Thomas Keith. How are you, sir? Good. Thank you, Derek. Absolutely. And we were just talking before we started recording. Uh, so you're, you recently released a documentary that's about a very, very heavy subject. And for the most part with this show, I tend to I, I'll talk about dramas and you know mostly comedies and stuff of the the lighter sort, but this was one of the most eye-opening and really powerful documentaries that I've watched in quite some time. And as I was watching it, I had to stop myself a couple of times just because the subject matter was so heavy. I was like, I I don't know if I can if I could get through this. So I I want to start right off the bat. What inspired you to make this documentary? So uh, I was actually in production on a different film. 
uh, it, had, it had some similar themes, but it wasn't about bullying. And uh, we had decided to interview some people who had been bullied or, or parents where their children had been bullied. And that's what opened the door to this. Uh, I, I met some people that are now in the film and their stories were so compelling. Their stories were, were just gripping, emotionally gripping. And I came back to Los Angeles and I told my production team, you know, I, I need to make this film as well. It, it can't be something that we just interject into a bigger film about other things. This needs to be a standalone project. And so um, that's really what got me into it. Plus, you know, I'd been bullied in school. Millions of people have been bullied in school. So it's a story that a, a lot of people can relate to. For sure. And I'm one of those people. And I think that's why this you know, spoke to me so powerfully because, you know, I can I can't remember the, the kid's name, but it was mentioned around the, the beginning of the film that there was a kid who was bullied for being small. And I was in that same situation. I'm you know, not a very tall person as an adult. I was very small as a kid and you know, found myself not wanting to go to school because I knew that good things were not going to happen because of other kids. And just hearing, I think what the most heartbreaking thing, and I, I don't want to dive into too many spoilers because you know, I think people should definitely see it for themselves, but hearing the parents' stories of all these kids that committed suicide due to the fact that they were just bullied constantly, and especially now with Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, it's like, you know, when I was having this conversation with my fiance the other day when we were I was talking about you doing this interview when we were kids, when we were done with school, we could at least get away from it because Facebook wasn't around back then. But now you have cell phones, you have text messages, you have social media that these kids can't, they can't get away from it. It seems like, so it was just, it was really heart wrenching, but really powerful as, as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. The bullying that took place when I was their age was face-to-face -face confrontations in hallways or at the locker room or something like that. Today, much of it is cyberbullying. Uh, the kids can't get away from it. Pictures and imagery are sent to their friends, family, entire schools in some cases. Uh, it can be very humiliating. And, and yeah, um, there are a lot of cases in this film that you, you said it was difficult to watch. It was difficult to make. I, I had, this was easily the most emotionally exhausting film I've ever made. And I would have to step away from the editing for a while just to get away from the, the story for a minute and clear my head. So I, I appreciate that it is a difficult film to see and it can be triggering to some people. But I also felt that those, those stories needed to be in there. Uh, first of all, they have a right to tell their stories, but beyond that, to impress upon people how serious this really is, you know, it's not just teasing or little bits of name calling that you can just blow off. Uh, it, it's much more serious than that. Uh, 5,000 kids in America take their own lives each year, 200,000 attempt it. Uh, so, so to the degree that they have to go to an emergency room. So this is a serious problem. And, uh, I think, the film makes that point. For sure. And I, I did want to ask, you mentioned that it was, you know, an emotional impact on you because you had to, I, I can't imagine editing this and being able to just sit through and edit the whole thing. Like I, you, I would be in that exact same position if I had to edit the film 
because there's just so many you know, heartbreaking stories after heartbreaking stories. How how did you once you decided that you wanted to tell this story and make this documentary? What was the process that you went through? Because you know, documentary filmmaking is something that I've dabbled into as far as discussions go on this show. But what what steps did you go through to get this project off the ground? You know, the very first thing was meeting Kirk Smalley. For those who see the film, he's the very first person you'll see in the film. Um, meeting him, and he's the president of an organization called Stand for the Silent. After his son's suicide, he decided to become an activist and try to take steps to help other families. And so this organization is sort of a network of people who have had similar circumstances and meeting him really opened the door for me. I realized that this was an international problem. He, in fact, put me in touch with a lot of other families. I started hearing their stories, um, collecting the footage, realizing that these stories were very similar. And so uh, putting it together, trying to make sure that people understood the kids are bullied for a, a lot of different reasons. That's why you'll see someone here from the LGBT community. You see someone here that was bullied because of race. You see, as you were saying earlier, someone who was bullied because they were short. It's like kids will pick on those who are different in some way, whatever that happens to be. But it can be because of race, sexual orientation, and those sorts of things as well. And that's why each of these individuals in the film are there, because they, while their stories are similar, their stories are also unique that they went through a unique set of circumstances that put them at risk for bullying. And I thought all of that needs to be understood. What I, what I get along on the, on the film page, I get people saying, well, just, just beat them up, you know, or just bully the bully, you know, and they'll go away, which is a, a wildly simple-minded, you know, notion that, that doesn't work. A lot of the bullies run in packs. They pick on kids who are decidedly unable to defend themselves. Um, and so it's more complicated than just that. And I thought the complications uh, need to come into this film so people can appreciate that this is a, a problem that needs to be dealt with in a multifaceted way, not just a, you know, punch the bully and it'll all be over. Well, because the bully wouldn't really learn anything. You know, it's, it's, it's more of a matter of understanding. You know, if you're looking at it from the one who's doing the bullying's perspective, they have to understand why what they're doing is wrong. And if you just simply punch them in the face, it's not really going to be a teachable act. You know, it's, it's about learning why certain things are wrong. And you actually hit the nail on the head. Something that, you know, really stood out to me was each story had similarities, but they were also different because of the race, because of the sexual orientation. There's different layers to bullying. And I think some people look at bullying as a very narrow minded thing. But it's really not. People can get bullied for, you know, many different reasons. And some of it, a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're they're different. You know, there are kids who are less sociable. So they're looked at as being beneath other kids. But that's that's not necessarily the case. So that that was something else that really stood out to me was seeing these different stories from different people who are from different parts of the world. But it all comes down to the fact that they are treated unfairly because they're different. So, and, and you mentioned that, you know, about the, the raw emotional impact of it. It's not a very comfortable film to watch, but I think it's for the right reasons. 
you know, the, the reasons aren't sugarcoated. And I, I appreciated that. You know, there's a couple things that I'd like audiences to know also, which is one, uh, the, the foremost experts on bullying in the nation are in this film. You know, I'm a scholar. I teach at the university level. And so the way I approach things is to look for experts that they can, you know, bring their expertise to the film. So that's one thing. The film ends on much more of a positive note. We talk about the steps that can be taken to mitigate the effects of bullying and reduce bullying. Uh, these are programs that have been instituted all over the world, and they have shown uh, remarkably uh, positive results. Uh, beyond that, one thing about bullies that I think folks ought to know too, and I learned this from talking to the experts themselves, that many bullies are themselves bullied. That is to say, they, they're bullied at home, let's say, and then they go to school and they bully. And these young people, it turns out, are at the highest risk for self-harm. So even the bullies themselves have complications to them. It's not just the old jock versus nerd dichotomy, you know, that, that's really more of a stereotype. Uh, some of these kids are dealing with being bullied horrendously at home, and then they're acting out in other contexts. And so they also need help. They also need counseling and and some kind of empathy toward them as well. It's not just kick them out of school. Uh, that becomes the sort of school to pipeline prison scenario. So even with bullies, uh, a lot of them need help too and uh, help them to you know, reintegrate into society and, and, and get the kind of counseling and, and support that they need. Well, it reminds me of discussions that I've had you know, over the past year with you know, all the social justice stories that have been coming out over the last year. Uh, a lot of that, and I'll tie the bullying into that as well, a lot of those problems will need to be fixed within the home. You know, the parents, the ones who are raising the children, have to teach them that this behavior is not okay, and then hope they pass it down to their kids, and then from there on out. But as you mentioned, there are some kids who get bullied when they go home, and they and I'm not saying this to justify it, but it's like they take out that frustration or they act out that same behavior because they probably don't know any better. Absolutely. Uh, they're getting bullied in other contexts. And you're right. They're also young people. Their brains are still developing. They're going through a lot of changes physiologically. And so they don't know necessarily how to handle that stress. And that could be one of the triggers that's causing them to act out on parents. Yeah. When I spoke to parents, it's an interesting thing. A lot of the parents whose children were bullied had no idea it was happening. It's very common for kids not to tell their parents what's happening. And so a lot of, and that scares, it's understandably frightening to parents to think that my child could be going through all this and I have no idea. Uh, so getting that communication flow going is really crucial to getting these kids to open up and talk to someone who can get them help. Maybe their best friend knows, but other people don't. As far as the people that are contributing to getting these kids to become bullies, like I played NCAA division one sports and my coaches were sometimes some of the biggest bullies I ever knew. They would, they would berate us with sexist and homophobic you know, slurs to try to motivate us to be better athletes, not realizing that that's exactly the sort of thing that was validating those behaviors. We would go out and on, on reflection, I now think of it as bullying. You know, we would say things that were, that were cruel uh, to other people 
because we were getting it from coaches. We were getting it from our dads or whoever was, you know, in our circle that were modeling these behaviors. So yeah, the, the way that adults model behaviors has a real impact on kids. And they have to think about that when their kids are present, their kids are sponges. They're going to emulate what they see you doing. Well, there's something else that's touched on in the beginning of the film too, about in teenagers, their um, prefrontal cortex is underdeveloped, which leads them you know, more open to be you know, impressionable and you know, not know that what they're, what the decision they're making is wrong. So I, I, I like that it went into the science of it as well. It, it really did a good job of explaining from all avenues, you know, why it's happening. And as you mentioned, it, there's a lot of uncomfortable stories that you sit through, but it does end on a positive note and ways to help prevent it. So I, I, I I very much enjoyed it. I thought it told uh, great stories and I, I applaud the parents for having the courage to be able to sit down with you and the rest of the cast and crew and tell those stories. Cause that had to be tough. I do too. I do too. I, I am <clears throat> very grateful to them. What happens when someone loses a child? I'm sure not just to suicide, but in other ways <clears throat> is they, uh, some group of parents will withdraw and they don't, they don't want to talk to anybody. I understand that. And I respect that other parents become activists. They do not want to see this ever happen to anybody else. And so they become very active. They want to tell their stories. And those are the people in this film. Uh, they trusted me with their stories. And so I, I view them now like extended family. I'm very protective of them. And uh, on, on your other point, absolutely, I brought in Adriana Galvan. She's a neuroscientist at UCLA. So that people can understand when kids are subjected to bullying, their reactions to it are very different than yours and I, you know, yours and mine. If someone were to say something bad to us, cruel to us, a slur aimed in our direction, most adults can blow that off and go, you know, leave me alone. Kids' brains are such that, you know, it hits them much harder their friend group, the perception of who's cool and who's not cool and all this is, is their world. It's their entire world. So if they're humiliated, let's say, in front of friends, in front of classmates, it's devastating to them in ways that adults can, you know, can, can get past it. So I wanted, I wanted a lot of adults who think, well, just get over it. Um, it's not easy for kids the way it is for us. So they are a special group when it comes to their reactions to this, they, they have more vulnerabilities. Well, you brought up a great point about how some parents become activists and some withdraw. I think everyone grieves in their own way. Some will completely isolate from everyone, friends and family included. And others, I, I think that those who became activists, like the, the gentleman in the beginning of the film, that might be their way of grieving is using that story to make sure that no one else has to go through that again. Because I, I had, you know, several years ago, one of my close friends uh, died in a car accident and only 21 years of age. And his parents were changed forever. And his mother was you know, very withdrawn. So I, I can I can understand that from, you know, from that perspective. You know, it in the wake of something like this happening, I learned uh, from talking to these folks, wonderful people come out and are very supportive and horrible things come out. They get blamed. 
suddenly they're getting anonymous emails and texts, you know, that, that they were the cause of this. I can't even imagine. And, and so it brings out the best in some people and the worst in others, unfortunately. Uh, but I give them so much uh, credit for coming out and having the strength. I'm a father. And so the thought of going something through something like this, I, I, can, I cannot even imagine. And the fact that they embraced it in sort of an activist way, I, I applaud them. I think they're wonderful people. They're very strong people. And, and I think that comes through in the film too, you know, even though they, they've suffered so much, I think that strength comes through and it changed, like you said, it changed them forever. Absolutely. For sure. And moving on a little bit to some of your other work, because I'm curious as to why you would want to tell these types of stories, because you also wrote a couple of books, uh, Masculinities and Contemporary American Culture and The Bro Code. And you've also done other films as well. So what what inspired you to tell these specific types of stories? Right. A lot of my work before the film Bullied was on issues of gender. And I teach gender in graduate school out here in Southern California. And I'd seen lots of other films and, and read books and such. And I was doing what a lot of scholars do. You write your articles and your journals and you go to conferences and all of that. And nothing really changes. Um, you're, you're going to conferences and speaking to other scholars. You're in classrooms. So I thought, looking at some of the films that had been made, I thought, this is a really good tool because young people watch films. If you assign, you know, read this article or read this chapter of this book, you know, a few of them might, most of them won't. But if you can say, I'd like you to watch this film and we're going to discuss it, you know, they'll all watch the film. They're plugged into media. Media is a huge part of their lives. And so it's a great learning tool for young people. That's what got me thinking about doing film work in the first place. My films were documentaries. They were academic documentaries. So they're in classrooms all over the world. This was the first film that I took to film festivals and started thinking, what if we now open it up and have a bigger conversation? So it's not just classrooms and, and academia. Let's, let's, you know, bring this into the open. And I've invited a lot of my colleagues. I think scholars in general <clears throat> should take a, a more active role in, in popular culture. You know, go out there and, and sell your stuff to, I mean, I have articles in the New York Times and Time Magazine and, and Washington Post because I want the conversations to be bigger. I want everyone to get involved and not just this sort of narrow community of scholars. So films are a great vehicle for that. It's a great way to get discussion going. Um, <clears throat> I have certainly learned a lot of lessons by going to the festivals and now going onto digital platforms and having audiences that are very different than the academic audiences. The comments are different, uh, the insights are different. And, and I look at that in a, in a real positive way. I'm learning and growing a lot myself uh, by having this experience. Well, I think it was a brilliant move to make film because as you said people are more likely to watch film and I, i'm one of those people if you give me you know a three-page article or a 20-minute video i'm gonna yeah. watch the 20-minute video sure. because it is just so much more i don't want to say accessible because you know you can get articles in quite a few places as well but hearing the voice and seeing you know, the visual evidence like in bullied you see footage of kids actually being bullied like a kid getting you know punched in a hallway or in a locker room that seeing it i think makes a much more emotional impact than by simply reading words 
So I, I thought that was brilliant. Plus, you know, with so many avenues now compared to you know, even 20 years ago, because you have YouTube, you have Vimeo, you have Amazon Prime, Netflix, Hulu. There's so many avenues to to put your work out there and have people hear your voice. So I thought that was a brilliant decision. That's exactly right. Um, you know, articles and books don't have the same emotional power as seeing somebody, as hearing their story, listening to their, their words, just such more, you know, it's a powerful vehicle. Um, even narrative films too, it doesn't have to be a documentary film. As, as all of you know, when you watch a narrative movie, it can be extremely moving, right? So the entire, you know, film genre, I think is a wonderful avenue to, to learn, to teach, to move people. If, if people are gonna get involved, they have to be emotionally moved. If you just, if I just got in front of people and started uh, talking about statistics, that's not very moving. When you see the people's faces, you hear their stories, you are emotionally moved and that's will get people involved. Then they'll think, how can I be a part of this? How can I help bring about change? And they wouldn't necessarily thinking that if they just would have read an article, you know, or saw a speech somewhere of an academic speaking. It's just not nearly as, as emotionally moving as a film. When even I'll use the example of the beginning of Bullied, it starts with the same gentleman that we've mentioned a couple of times. The first words you hear him say are, this was my son's signature from the last Father's Day card that he ever gave me. And right then I was like, oh, my God. And then seeing all the other stories unfold after that was just was just incredibly moving. That that his name is Kirk Smalley. He lives in Oklahoma. Uh, I conducted that interview uh, in Oklahoma, about a two-hour interview that we spent together. It was easily the most intense interview I've ever had in my life. I was, I can't even find the words to say how I felt when we said our goodbyes and he left. And I was just emotionally exhausted from that. But then I also realized in that moment, you know, uh, these folks, they need to be they need to be seen. They need to be heard. I'm going to bring Kirk's story and these other people to life so people can see what's what they're going through. And, and hopefully this motivates them to want to change, you know, and not just individuals. I mean, school board officials, teachers, educators, they're on the sort of the front lines and they're the ones that can institute policy that could really make a dramatic impact in their schools and the sorts of activities that kids are getting into. Cleveland Unified School District uh, brought in social emotional learning, I want to say about eight years ago, and they have watched their bullying rates drop by almost 40%. While at the same time, and, and, and folks need to understand this, when bullying drops in your school, guess what also happens? Scores start going up, grades start improving, graduation rates start going up. It all goes together, which makes sense. If you're a kid sitting in your math class worried about when that bell rings, you've got to go into the hallway and God knows what's waiting for you. How can you possibly do well in school? How can you even focus on what's going on in school? So when bullying is controlled in, in the right sorts of ways, the programs that we know work, everyone wins. The schools do better. Grades go up. Graduation rates go up. Parents are happy. It's just a win-win for everybody. Agreed 100%. And kind of going back to what we were talking about, how film is used as a tool. You know, I, I often say that film makes for a great escape. 
you know, if you're having problems in your life, you can go to a movie theater and watch, you know, a comedy or, you know, a fun sci-fi or adventure movie, and you can just get lost in it for a couple of hours. But I think another thing, too, of what makes film such a powerful tool, and it's, to me, the greatest art form that there is out there, because you can tell so many different stories in so many different ways, and it impacts different people in different ways. But it can also be used, as you've done, to raise awareness for a very real issue that's going on. And I, I, I commend you, sir, for doing that. Thank you. I mean, it's the only kind of films that I'm interested in doing. I, I love all kinds of films too. I mean, take a film like 12 Years a Slave. When I saw that in the theater, it was so moving to me that I, I was felt just frozen there. The credits are rolling and I'm, I'm looking at this and I was weeping and I'm thinking, you know, that's, that's what film has the power to do. And so whether you're making narrative films or documentary films, you know, you, you have the power to really move people and get people not just to think, but to feel and to get involved and to help change society, you know? And so, you know, thank you for that. But I, it, it's, I, I'm very rewarded for what I do. I feel like it's a gift that I've been given to be able to make these films. And, and if, it, if it helps people in some small way, then that's all I need. Absolutely. And something I'm curious about from the filmmaker side, you mentioned that you had learned a lot from uh, going to film festivals. What's the biggest lesson that you've learned? Wow, that's a good one. I haven't thought about that question. First of all, just getting the feedback from audiences in, in real time. You know, here's an audience theater full of people. They just saw the film and their immediate reactions and questions were fascinating as they were all over the map. Um, so there's that. There's the business side of things because my other films are academic and they went through academic distributors. And so I didn't have that immediate reaction to seeing audiences like film festivals or the business and how you, how you go about all this. It's a real learning curve for those who've never done it. You know, how do you get a distributor? How do you get the marketing together? You know, how do you get a budget together? All the things that people in film, you know, contend with every single day. So that's what I mean by, by learning a lot of, of practical things, as well as just those immediate sort of reactions. I speak all around the country, uh, but they're usually at universities. And so they'll have seen my films in a classroom, and then here they are in an auditorium to, to have a conversation. That's a different reality than being in a theater and people just saw your film from all different backgrounds and walks of life. And then immediately they have questions for the filmmaker. I mean, I loved it. It was a really extraordinarily, extraordinary experience, but a really wonderful experience. And it taught me a lot. Audience members would say, they'd say things or they'd have questions that never dawned on me. So I'd say, hey, that, that, that's an amazing point, you know, and it get me to think. So yeah, terrific. Anyone doing this work, if you haven't been to the festivals and haven't had that experience, you've got to do it. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I before COVID hit, I had the pleasure of um, taking my short to a couple of festivals and participating in Q and A's. And you, you learn different things from different people because people might look at things from a different perspective than you and offer you something like, "Oh, why didn't I think of that?" You know, or that could be something that you take on for for a future project. So I, I agree with you a hundred percent. Festivals are great; they're great networking because you can learn so many things that you wouldn't have learned before. Absolutely. It's a wonderful experience. I look forward to doing it again. I have a new film coming out in 21 later this summer. And so I'll be 
back in the fall, hitting the festival circuit again. So I, I very much look forward to it. We'll have to have you back on the show to talk about that. I would love to. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, as we start to wrap up here, I did want to ask you, I always like to end the interviews with this. What is one piece of advice that you could give to an aspiring documentary filmmaker? You know, I, I, I heard this from my, my crew members who went to USC when Tarantino visited and they would have these questions like, how do we do it? How do we get our foot in the door? And what they told me is what I would tell others. What Tarantino said to them is just get a camera and start doing it. Just start doing it. Get the film, get yourself an inexpensive editing program. Just start putting it together. You know, you'll learn so much from that first process that your second film will be extraordinarily better. You're going to learn and begin to grow. It's something that you do. Yes, you can take classes. You can do all that. And that's all great. But just start doing it. Get out there. Tell your stories. Just jump into the mix. And uh, it's a very rewarding experience. You'll meet people along the way that will be enormously helpful to you. But I'm, that's my advice. Just get out there and start making your films. Use your cell phone cam if you have to. Just start making films and, and get involved. I couldn't have said it any better myself. I agree 100%. The last question, uh, do you have uh, any website that you'd like to plug so the listeners can follow you? And uh, how can people watch Bully? So um, my website is tomkeith.com. It's more of an academic site, but all my films and books are there as well. Um, uh, they can watch Bully right now on Tubi TV, which is an AVOD, so that's free. You can just sign up, uh, you know, no fees. It's also on Docurama, which is uh, supported by, you know, Amazon and Roku and YouTube and a bunch of other uh, platforms. So it's out there on a number of digital platforms right now, all for free. Um, so that'd be the way to do it. You can contact me through the website. If you see something you want to uh, converse with me, uh, that'd be great. Just write to me. My email address is there and look forward to hearing from you. Fantastic. Well, sir, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. As I said, Bullied was one of the most powerful films that I've watched in a long time. And uh, I appreciate you making it and to all the parents who had the courage to tell their stories. It was it was amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you, Derek. I, I enjoyed this tremendously and the opportunity to meet you and speak with you. Look forward to doing it again sometime. Thanks again to Dr. Thomas Keith for that wonderful and insightful conversation about Bullied. If you want to check out the documentary, it'll be available this Friday, March 12th on Amazon, YouTube Movies, Sling TV, really anywhere you can stream films. Just search for it. As I said, it's one of the most powerful documentaries I've seen in quite some time, so definitely go check that out. And if you want to find more of Thomas's work, visit his website at tomkeith.com. And if you want to follow this show, on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at D Diamond Podcast. If you want to subscribe to the show, I'm on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you can get your podcast for free. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. And if you could, please leave a review. The more reviews I get, the more visible I become to the podcasting public. I'm also on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. If you want to watch the video versions of the show, I'm on YouTube. Just search for Derek Diamond and you can find all the videos there. And of course, thank you to my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for the podcast. You can check out all their music on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. 
That's going to do it for this week's show. So enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back here next Thursday. <laughs>